I, I tell you, I, I hate that the, uh, the band stopped. I could have listened to that a little bit longer. Because um, definitely, 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 I, I remember growing up <clears throat> uh, and being around the house and, and my mom would be singing some old gospel songs. Songs that, that I didn't think were catchy or impactful or meaningful. They sounded dated. They didn't tap my toe. Uh, and I can remember just watching her move through the day and, and sometimes be crying, sometimes hand up. And I'm thinking, we're not even in church. <laughs> but she had tasted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She had tasted and had seen that the Lord was good. My father has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And it took me some time. But standing here, I've now tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And I'm not talking about, ooh, he, he, you know, he, he got me that job, or ooh, he got me that raise, or ooh, he, he opened that door. I'm just talking about him. He is good. <laughs> that's, that's a whole different place, right? That's a different way of thinking. I'm not saying that he's treated me good. I'm saying that he is good. And he's been good ever since he was. You do the math on that. I don't know when that was. And, and it took me some time to just come to the realization of what he has always been. That's, that's the other thing, too. Sometimes we think that our acknowledgement of him being good, like he all of a sudden started being good the moment we started noticing that he was good. But he's always been good. That's why it says you need to come taste and see that the Lord is good because that's a quality already uh, inherent in who God is. He is good. And for those that may be struggling and thinking, well, how in the world do I the Lord is How do I taste and see that the Lord is good? Keep living. Life has a way of ebbing and flowing and life has a way of of causing some things to happen in some circumstances, some situations that move you into a place where you have to taste and see that the Lord is good. <clears throat> Am I going to have to switch out here? All right. So this morning, with just uh, a little bit of time before we get into the preached word, I do want us to have just a moment of prayer, and there's no need for you to stand or anything like that, but just congregational prayer and just an opportunity for us to collectively come before God, but then individually, uh, as you know that you have concerns and you have um, circumstances in your life that maybe only you know or maybe you or only your family know, or some things may be going on within your family, some things may be going on within your community, within uh, your workplace, but just this is the time, right, where, where we can come and, and pray on behalf of not only ourselves, but for others, for the city, 
uh, for the body of Christ um, in general at large. Uh, and we don't want to treat this time lightly. And, and, and look, I'm not saying this like you, you are, but it's just to, to always kind of sometimes, I've said this before, and you guys know how this is, sometimes it, it becomes so routine. It's like driving home from work. You ever, you ever pulled into the garage and all of a sudden you're like, man, I don't even remember kind of passing by all the things. I know I had to pass by to get here. I, I don't remember the stoplights. I don't, but, but because you do it so often, it's so routine, you know how to go through the motions. But effectively, you, you really weren't there. Right? You really weren't in the moment. You really weren't taking in the surroundings. You really weren't paying attention. You were just kind of going through the motions. And sometimes that happens to us at church. Look, it happens to us all because church becomes routine. We have a program. It tells us this is what happens now. This is what happens next. This is how, you know what I'm saying, those kinds of things. And so we have to be intentional about making sure that the service doesn't become routine. I'm not saying it doesn't have a flow, but that it doesn't become routine for us. And so that's why I'm doing all of this. That's why I'm taking this time so that when we enter into this time of prayer, because think about what prayer is. Prayer is not just me dumping the things I want in front of God. But prayer is literally me asking, me petitioning and, and imploring the God of the universe to move on my behalf. That's awesome. That's powerful. That should not be taken lightly. So it's with that mindset and in that spirit that I want us to now enter into congregational prayer. Amen? Let's just bow our heads for just a moment. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you recognizing that sometimes, because we are creatures of habit, sometimes we make our relationship with you just a routine habit. God, we ask for your forgiveness in those times that we've done that, when we've just gone through the motions, when we've just kind of checked a box, when we've just kind of done what we're supposed to do at the time we're supposed to do it. So we stand before you, God, asking for your forgiveness, but we stand confident that your forgiveness is there. We stand grateful that your son Jesus died on the cross just so that we could stand before you and ask for forgiveness and be forgiven and have relationship with you. God, we ask that you would do something in us that only you can do, and that is to spark revival. We can't revive ourselves. That comes from you. But what we can do is put ourselves in a position, in a mindset, in a desiring revival from you, God. And the reason we desire that, God, is not so that we, we can uh, uh, be the head and not the tail, not so that we can be blessed and, 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 and our cup uh, flowing over and pressed down more than we can count, and all those kinds of things that appeal to the flesh. But we want to be revived because the world needs to see an image of the living God. The world needs to see what it means to walk in obedience to God. The world needs to see what it means to generate the fruits of the Spirit. The world needs to see what it means to say that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. 
The world doesn't need to see me get a promotion. It doesn't need to see me get a raise, but it needs to see me loving my neighbors as myself. It needs to see me caring for the needs of others before I'm caring for myself. The world needs to see an expression of what it means to be in true fellowship with the one God of the universe. God, we stand here knowing that there are heavy hearts in our city, God. Heavy hearts because of tragedy that has taken place. Some of it that's been on the news and some of it that has just been quiet in between four walls, God. We know that people are hurting, not just here, but across this nation, across this world. And you have called us to be the church, to be your arms and to be your legs. God, strengthen us with your spirit. Stand us up in your strength, God. Give us boldness and confidence to move into places and to spaces that you've called us in to be light and to be salt, God. Coming with a hand to help, but also with a word to encourage, God. God, I pray that you would even now be dealing with each one of us individually there is something that is blocking our relationship with you. There is something that has raised itself up, God, that is vying to be Lord and, 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 and ruler of our lives. There is something, God, that wants to sit on the throne of our hearts that's rivaling you in our lives, God. Be God and tear that thing down. Brick by brick, stone by stone, tear down the strongholds that are in our lives, God. And, and don't just tear it down, but then build up new strongholds, new ways of thinking, new ways of believing, new ways of behaving, God. So that when people look at us, they will see you. Now, God, prepare our hearts and minds to hear from you in this word today. God, as I've said before, I don't need your help to preach this, but I need you to preach this message, God. I need your voice to be the voice that the people hear. I need your spirit to penetrate and to break through the noise, huh, the distractions. Give us a singular focus to hear from you, God. Let us desire your word above all else. Let us desire your presence above all else. And God, we ask that you do what only you can do, and that is make sure that your word does not return to you void, but that it accomplishes all that you sent it forth to accomplish. We stand here believing and proclaiming that when your word is taught, when your word is preached, things change. And it is in that hope, it's in that belief, and in that confidence that we pray. And in Jesus' name, everyone who agreed said amen. 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 Well, good morning, good morning, good morning, solid word. I'm blessed and honored again to be uh, before you again this morning to share God's word with God's people. And what we're going to be doing today, and Pastor mentioned this last Sunday, is picking back up with our uh, series in Proverbs. We are um, 
in Proverbs chapter 3, if you will recall. And, uh, and we will be moving through that uh, um, chapter this morning. Uh, but from a perspective of uh, a lesson aim, uh, and this isn't going to be fancy, it's not going to be long, and it's not going to be uh, overly eloquent. Uh, the aim of the lesson today is that we would understand that we are not wiser than God. Very simply, that we would understand that we are not wiser than God. Uh, like I said, we're going to be in the third chapter of Proverbs, but <clears throat> from a standpoint of an anchor verse, uh, we're going to be focusing on verses 5 through 8. And I'll go ahead and read those here <clears throat> for you, reading from the ESV. This is a familiar verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. All right. Well, look here, just by way of uh, introduction to kind of set everything up, um, almost 24 years ago, 24 years ago, I can't even... Imagine, fathom that. Almost 24 years ago, when I was in college, I joined a fraternity. And some of you guys in here have pledged a, a Greek organization. And to get into that organization, I had to go through a process. And that process was a pledge process. And this process was primarily facilitated by on-campus members of the organization. But they would be helped out by members of the organization throughout the city and from other campuses. But one thing that was of utmost importance during the process is that those who were trying to join the fraternity, specifically at that particular chapter, uh, would get to know the members of that chapter. And those not who were just on campus, obviously, but also those who had graduated and were no longer on campus or even in the city anymore. Now, while in the process, there was a level of decorum. And you can imagine, you guys have seen some movies and you've experienced this, I'm sure, that we, my line brothers and I, we had to follow a certain amount of decorum. When interacting with members of the fraternity, we had to address them a certain kind of way. We had to respond to them a certain kind of way. And we had to do whatever they said. And an element of our process, and I dare say, I dare say most pledge processes, was being given tasks and assignments uh, and projects that ultimately we could not possibly have completed. There just wasn't enough time in the day. There weren't enough of us, and, and the, the, the assignments and the expectations and the tasks were coming fast and furious. And get this, when we didn't complete it or didn't carry it out and didn't do what the big brothers had asked, we found out very quickly that there would be some consequences. But it also didn't take us long to figure out which big brothers you had some leeway with and which ones you didn't. Which ones, right, whose bark was worse than their bite and, and, and which ones uh, who, who, who actually brought the heat. <laughs> which allowed us to prioritize, right? Uh, and, and what we did, based on the perceived risk of, of consequence, we then began to prioritize these tasks and these assignments and these expectations. So you can imagine, we responded one way to those brothers who were swift and efficient with the execution of consequences and responded another way to those brothers who wouldn't or couldn't do anything. 
And I see my <laughs> Fernando's nodding. And, 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 yeah, you guys know, right? Uh, and, and this phenomenon, right, by, by example here, isn't unique to my line. It's not unique, I don't think, to, to my chapter, my fraternity, anything like that. And I dare say uh, it's not unique to, to others, right? As a matter of fact, within the chapter, we had a phrase to describe this phenomenon. And it went like this. <clears throat> Excuse the English. You brings no heat, you gets no dap. Huh. You brings no heat, you gets no dap. In other words, in other words, if there aren't any consequences for the pledges, for not doing what you said, then the pledges aren't going to respond the way you want them to. You see, during my process, right, there were some big brothers that, were, that, that we were literally afraid of. I, I don't mean, oh, we don't want to spend time. No, I mean literally afraid of. I can remember back then we had beepers. You know, everybody had a beeper. And, and when you got a beeper and a certain brother's dog tag kind of came through, his, his, his number, his year, man, make your heart fall. You got to call this brother back. What does he want? Oh, my goodness. What is about to happen, right? <laughs> uh -uh. And when those kinds of brothers said jump, my line brothers and I were like, how high and how long do you want us to stay there? Hmm. But then there were other brothers, especially those who were out of town that you weren't afraid of, those who hadn't done anything to us or we felt like couldn't do anything to us, that we prioritized lower in the list, all because... They hadn't brought any heat, so they were getting no dap from us, so to speak. And while this is maybe amusing and interesting and a little bit of a window into what Greek life can be like when you're pledging, there is a more serious point, of course, that I'm trying to make. And that is that this is how I believe many of us treat God. God, you brings no heat, you gets no dap. <laughs> We consider the things he tells us, he asks us, the commands he gives us to be optional, to be discretionary, to be expendable, because guess what? The last time I didn't do that, he didn't strike me dead. God, you bring no heat. You get no dap. And we prioritize the things that God says against the things that other people have said and other, and other things uh, pump into our minds, right? Uh, and we end up elevating those things over and above God. This is why, you guys may be thinking, where are you going with this, Charles? But this is why Proverbs 1 and 7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Huh. Because a right view of God translates into a right response to God to what he says, and to what he commands. And I'm starting here, even though we're in Proverbs 3, I'm going back to Proverbs 1-7, not just by way of reminder, but because if we don't get this, if we don't get to a place of responding to God differently, and I'm, I'm we, I'm not standing here saying you, we, 
If we don't get to a place of responding to God differently, then all we're doing right now is just reviewing and talking about some good points, some good ideas, some interesting thoughts that we'll never put into place, that we'll never put into practice. And at the end of the day, neither you nor me hmm, really want God to start bringing the heat. just to get us to listen to him. Hmm. So hopefully that perks your ears up, gets your mind singularly focused, gets your heart right for us to now jump into the text. Amen? Now, we're primarily going to focus just on verses 5 through 8, but I did want to touch on a couple of points throughout the entire chapter regarding the overall structure of the chapter. And there's some interesting things that you'll see if you were to kind of do an outline of the chapter. So in verses 1 through 4, and again in verses 21 through 26 in chapter 3, we see the admonishment, the request from a father to his son to not ignore this good advice that he's been giving him, to not allow it to just kind of go in one ear and out the other, but the father implores his son, right? He pleads with his son to hold on to these words, not because they are the father's words, uh, but because these words are meant to help and to benefit the son, to make his life long, to make it peaceful, to, to, to make it uh, full of joy and happiness, to make his walk secure and to keep him from being afraid as he moves through life, to anchor his confidence in the Lord. Then what we also see, right, in verses 9 through 12, and then again in verses 27 and 31, these are what I call the do's and the don'ts. Uh, where the father lays out some specific examples of things his son should do and then some things that his son shouldn't do as it pertains to wealth and as it pertains to God's discipline, as as it pertains to being generous towards others, being kind and considerate towards his neighbors. Uh, This is kind of a, a, a wisdom in action section, if you will. Then in verses 13 through 18, we see... Uh, the father then began to list out the benefits and the qualities of wisdom as he states, right, that the person who finds wisdom and understanding is blessed. The person who, who finds wisdom is, and understanding is blessed because, right, he, as he describes wisdom, he calls wisdom a woman. He says, because she is more valuable. She is more precious than jewels and metals. Uh, she, she, she leads to long life. Riches, honor, and peace, and happiness. And as if that wasn't enough, the father goes on to say in verses 19 and 20 that this wisdom, right, that is more valuable than precious stones, that leads to long life and to peace and to happiness, this same wisdom that is being freely offered to the son is the same wisdom used by God when he created the heavens and the earth. Huh. So let me stop there because that that sets what's being described here a little different than just some good advice, right? This sets what's being offered here a little different than just some uh, benefits of my experience. But what the father is telling the son is, is he's saying, look here, the wisdom that begins 
with the fear of the Lord, this wisdom is the same wisdom that God used to basically create everything that is. And God has given you an opportunity to tap into that wisdom. Mm -hmm. The chapter ends with verses 32 through 35, basically now describing how God responds and how he treats, right, those who utilize wisdom and those who don't. Namely, that God is, he's close to, he blesses, he gives grace and honor to those who live their lives according to his wisdom. But those who don't live their lives according to his wisdom, what does God do? Well, it says that they are cursed and that they are an abomination in his sight. That God scoffs at them. He laughs at those who do not utilize his wisdom, and they are characterized by dishonor. Now, again, that's a very high, high level overview of the chapter, but in my reading of the chapter, and as I spent some time with the material, I believe, as I said before, that verses 5 through 8, right, stand as a central section in the chapter, as, as a theme, a thematic section of the chapter, while the remaining verses expound upon, they highlight or they, uh, uh, they, they depict and give examples of the precepts and the truths that are laid out in verses 5 through 8. So now let's just walk through verses 5 through 8 and, and go a little bit deeper. First, looking at verse 5, let's spend a little time making sure that we understand and have a good understanding of some of these words that are in the verse so that we really comprehend what is trying to be communicated. Because uh, you guys know, and, and I've lived this, you've lived this, we use a lot of words that we are familiar with, and I know uh, uh, and, we, and we know what kind of context to use those words in and where they fit and how they should be used in certain situations uh, and the scenarios that they should be used in. But if we were asked to give a definition of that word, we might be hard-pressed without using that word. Hmm. So first, we have the word trust, right? And this is a familiar word. There's nothing special about this word. But if someone were to ask you, what does it mean to trust, right? Well, to trust just means to have confidence, to have faith, to push it even further, right? It, it even carries with it an idea of having security and safety. But this confidence and this faith isn't just a, a detached feeling. This security and this safety isn't just kind of floating. It's not just a warm fuzzy, but it is focused on or rooted in something or someone. And the father lets the son know that that someone is the Lord. <laughs> now, you should see, you should notice, you should pay attention that in your Bible, uh, the word Lord is probably in all caps. Right? I see some of you nodding. And many of us know, but I'll restate it just to be safe, that when we see the word Lord in all caps, what we're actually seeing and what that's letting us know is that that is the translation of the word Yahweh, which is the, the Hebrew representation of the phrase that God used to describe himself when Moses asked, who should I say sent me? And God responded, I am that I am. Hmm. I'm going somewhere. This is so important because when this word shows up in the text for the Hebrew reader, and now hopefully for all of us, it would convey, it should convey more than just identification. It's not just, oh, God. Huh. But it 
would conjure up notions of the character, the qualities, the track record of the I am that I am. How he has shown himself worthy to be trusted in the past throughout Israel's history. This trusting in the Lord, the father tells his son, should be done additionally with all of his heart. Now, recall when the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about our feelings, our emotions, our desires, our wants, our wishes, our motivations, our thoughts, uh, our will, right? It really is, right, everything that a person is, everything that drives that person. So if we put it all together, what the father is telling the son is, look, son, every aspect of you, your thoughts, your emotions, your desires, your will, all of those things that make up who you are should be compelling you, should be driving you to have confidence in, to have faith in, to feel secure and to feel safe in the one, the covenant-keeping one, the existing one, the from everlasting to everlasting one, the all-powerful one, the ever-present one, the all-knowing one, the let-my-people-go one, the parting-the-red-sea one, the fire-by-day-and-cloud-by-night one, the manna-in-the-wilderness one, the I am that I am one who has shown himself time and time again through his character, his qualities, and his track record that he is worthy of your confidence and your faith and that he has your best interests at heart. Huh. Hmm. The fact that the father has to make the statement for his son to trust in the Lord with all of your heart, I think lets us know that his son, and just like you and me, right, has a tendency to not trust in the Lord with all of his heart. If it was something that this kid did well without fail, consistently and completely, then the father wouldn't have had to include the phrase, trust in the Lord with all your heart. He'd have said something like, and continue trusting in the Lord with all of your heart. And here's the kicker. It's not that we don't know how to trust. It's not even uh, that, that, that we don't know how to trust with all of our hearts. I mean, even people who say that they don't trust people are really only talking about certain people in certain situations that they don't trust. Because most of us don't have a problem trusting that teenager who fixed that fast food meal that we wolfed down yesterday. Most of us don't have a problem trusting the bus driver who takes our children to and from school. Most of us don't have a problem trusting the pilot flying the plane we just got on and then usually go right to sleep in. <laughs> we waltz ourselves right, right on in there, our trusting selves, into the state fair, getting on rides that weren't even there yesterday. You ain't seen no certificate. You ain't seen no torque ratings. You, you just got your ticket, and you're ready to get on this thing that's just whipping you around. And then the next day, you'd be like, hmm, the state fair is already gone. They done pulled that stuff up. But we have no problem trusting in there, right? And then literally, right, even here uh, in this morning, when you walked in, I didn't see anybody checking the screws in their seat, inspecting the cushions to make sure that the chair was going to hold them. We just plopped ourselves right on down into the chair. 
fully trusting and expecting that chair to hold us, to keep us from falling, to keep us safe and secure. Hmm. So it's not that we don't know how to trust. And as I stated, it's not even that we don't know how to trust with all of our hearts. But the issue is we're just trusting in the wrong things with all of our hearts. <laughs> Some of us are trusting in people. Some of us are trusting in institutions. Some of us are trusting in our finances, in our education, in political parties, in movements, in pop culture. Uh, and the list goes on and on and on. And as the Father indicates, all of us are more willing to trust in our own understanding than the wisdom of God. Now, when we're talking about understanding, right, it's more than just uh, pr processing information. It's more than just comprehension. But understanding actually has two aspects to it. On, on one hand, yes, it definitely is about processing information and comprehending facts and data. But on the other hand, it is also about discernment. Hmm, that's a churchy word, discernment. Some people say, I got the spirit of discernment. What does that mean? What does that mean, right? It just means being able to determine and make a, a, a distinction between what's the right thing to do and what's the wrong thing to do. Every Christian should have a spirit of discernment. <laughs> right? It's about being able to determine which option, which decision is best. Not which one looks best. Not which one we think is best. But which one actually is best. Do you understand that? That's, a, that's an important distinction. Because it, all of us can come up on a situation and say, well, it looks like. But what this is talking about is being able to say what it actually is. Hmm. And I dare say that that's a tall order for us to fulfill. This is actually exactly what happened in the garden. Eve perceived and Satan presented to her facts and information that she was able to process and to comprehend, right? The fruit was appealing to the eye, true. Eve would be different after eating the fruit, true. Eating the fruit would give Eve knowledge and insight that she didn't currently have, true. But Eve couldn't discern the rightness of the decision. She couldn't see beyond the choice that stood before her. The choice met all of the criteria by which most of us make our decisions now. It feels good. It seems good. It looks good. So it must be good. Just think about that for a minute. That we, who can't see beyond the moment, we, who don't know what will happen tomorrow, and barely can remember what happened yesterday. Huh. That we, who can't help but put ourselves at the center of every situation and scenario and can't fathom a, a, a resolution or a, re a reality that doesn't revolve around what we want at the end of the day, that we would then have the audacity, Murph, to then look at God who created everything that is 
out of nothing, a God who can see every outcome of every possible decision, a God who has all power and can do with all of that power what having all power can do, a God who immediately knows all that he has known or will know, a God who exists outside of time and sees the end from the beginning, that we would look at that God and tell him that we know better than he what is good for us, that we know better than him what constitutes an abundant life, that we know better than he how to run this world. We're running around here putting all of our faith and our trust in our understanding, thinking we've got all of the information. While we have a God who literally overstands everything. And the father says to his son, and he says to us today, don't put your confidence, don't put your faith in things that are just as finite and fallible and fallen as you are. But instead, son, from your father, I'm telling you, put your trust in the omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent I am that I am. Hmm. Now, having made it clear to the son that all of his trust should be placed in the great I am, he continues, the father does, to admonish his son. As he tells him that in all of his ways, the son should acknowledge uh, <clears throat> and, and, and should, should acknowledge the God that he is placing all of his trust in. And here I think, in all your ways is pretty straightforward, but just to be thorough, right? Our ways means our journey, our direction, our manner, our habits, our course of life. In short, what we do in life and how we do it. All of our ways. <laughs> and this is more than just what we do on Sunday morning, saints. How do I know that? Well, because the Father says that what he is sharing with his son applies to all of his son's ways. This, this, is, this is not deep theological, you know, word study Greek and Hebrew. This is just, what, what is he saying? He's saying that it's all of your ways, son. Not compartmentalized, not just where you want God and where you don't want God, but all of your ways, you should be acknowledging God. And here we are again, right, with a word that we are familiar with, but, but probably don't appreciate the depth of the meaning. Because when you think about it, when I think about acknowledging, we think of maybe a casual gesture. Maybe when you walk into a room, uh, you, you may display what I call the, the corporate nod. How you doing? Or if it's a little bit more comfortable, you might give them the, my brother, what's up? but I've acknowledged you, right? Or, or, or we also think about, right, if you have accomplished something and I realize that I didn't do it all on my own, like actors maybe thanking directors, athletes thanking their teammates and their coaches and uh, graduating students thanking parents and professors, uh, in some cases thanking God, right? <laughs> uh, and to, but to acknowledge God in all of our ways, it is more than just the throwaway references that are common in our church culture. 
It's more than just the blessing of our food when we sit down to eat. It's more than just saying, thank God, when something good happens or something bad doesn't happen. It's more than just first giving honor to God who is the head of my life. It's, it's more than just posting or sharing the verse of the day from your Bible app. It's more than a clever bumper sticker. It's more than listening to gospel music on Sunday morning before church. But to acknowledge in this sense, means a couple of things. It means to know, to perceive, to see, to find out, to discern, to discriminate, to distinguish, to recognize, to admit, and to consider. That's much more than just a nod as you come into the room, Deacon McManus. And when the son does this, the father says, when he acknowledges God in all his ways, God will respond. Get this. <laughs> God will respond by doing what? By making the son's path straight. Don't, 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 don't misunderstand what's happening here. That, that doesn't mean easy. <laughs> A straight path does not mean easy. But when it says that God will make the son's path straight, what he's saying is that God will direct and lead his son in a direction that will be pleasing and agreeable to God. Don't think of it as being on the easy road. Think of it as being on the straight and narrow road. The road that is pleasing in the sight of God. So as we did last time, let's put all of this together. We've walked through and got some de uh, definitions for some of these words and introduced some new concepts. If we put it all together, the father is saying, look here, son, everywhere you go, everything you do, every endeavor you embark upon, every circumstance and situation that you find yourself in, in every aspect of your life, you should be intentional about what, dad? About knowing, perceiving, seeing, finding out, discerning, discriminating, distinguishing, recognizing, and considering God. And when you do that, God will see that you are trying to know him, that you're trying to perceive him, that you're trying to find him, that you're trying to discern him in every aspect of your life, and he will respond by directing, guiding, leading you in a direction that will ultimately be pleasing and agreeable to him. And all of this, is an outflow of the previous verse. The son is to acknowledge God in all of his ways because he isn't leaning on his own understanding. As the son, and by extension, you and I are moving through life, right? We aren't to be trusting in our limited ability to figure things out. We aren't to be leaning on, relying on our understanding. But we are to acknowledge, acknowledge that God made everything Acknowledge that God knows the right path. Acknowledge that God's intent is to give us life, not to hinder our life, not to take away from our lives. But get this, his intent is to give us life, you and I, to give us the life that he envisioned for us from the moment he placed Adam and Eve in the garden. Huh. Now, 
verse 7 and 8. Verse 7 is really the crux of the matter here. And really what's at the core of why we don't trust God. Why we continue to lean on our own understanding. And it's because we consider ourselves to be wise in our own eyes. Not only that, let's just put it on the table. It's not just that we consider ourselves to be wise in our own eyes. But we actually consider ourselves to be wiser than God. I know at first that seems just unthinkable. Some good church folk. Mama didn't raise you to think you were smarter than God. Seems blasphemous. <laughs> you don't want to give to the church no more. I told you that you thought you was wiser than God. But just think about it for a moment. What are we saying to God when God says go right and we decide to go left? What are we saying to God when God says thou shall not and we decide that we shall? What are we saying to God when God says here is my pattern for marriage, for parenting, for relationships, for work, for finances, and we decide? to redefine or ignore those all together. We're saying, God, I'm wiser than you. We're telling God, I know better than you. I know that you sit high and you look low, God, but this matter and this one, you're mistaken. I know that you own the cattle on a thousand hills and everything belongs to you, but in this situation, your resources are insufficient, God. I know that you are from everlasting to everlasting and that you alone can see the end from the beginning, but you don't quite appreciate the urgency that this matter has for me. I know that even in my mother's womb, you knew me, but when it comes to this thing, you just don't understand how I feel, God. God, I know you have all power in your hand, but the stakes are just too high right now, and I've got to take matters into my own hands. God. I know better than you. <laughs> and we act like, and we sometimes like to act like, and some of you may even be thinking in your mind that this is some kind of new phenomenon. That, well, you know, ever since they took prayer out of school. And somehow, it's the young people, or it's those people, or it's that group, right? But this phenomenon of thinking that we are wiser than God is a phenomenon as old as mankind. Adam and Eve thought they knew better than God when they decided to eat the fruit. Cain thought that he knew better than God when he decided to kill Abel. Abraham and Sarah thought that they knew better than God when they decided to have a child with Hagar. Moses thought that he knew better than God when he decided to strike the rock when God told him to speak to it. Samson thought that he knew better than God when he decided to kick it down in Philistine. David thought that he knew better than God when he decided to commit adultery with Bathsheba and then tried to cover it up by having her husband killed. Solomon thought that he knew better than God even though the law said don't marry foreign women Women when he decided to marry women from pagan nations. Jonah thought that he knew better than God when he decided not to go to Nineveh and on and on and on. All of history, ancient history, recent history, your history, my history is full of examples of people 
believing that they know better than God, believing that we are wiser than God, and disregarding what he has commanded. Hmm. Just to give you a mental picture, imagine if you were in a store and you saw a parent and a child, and everything that that parent told the child, hey, don't touch that. Hey, put that down. Hey, be careful. Hey, look, don't stand up in the cart. Hey, don't, don't uh, uh, get out of the people's way. Watch out. What are you doing? Come back over here. The child would just ignore. Huh. Or even in some cases, be bold enough just to turn around, look at the parent in the face and say, no. And no matter how the parent tried to convince the child not to do these things that would place themselves or other people in harm's way, the child just kept doing what they wanted to do. What would you think if you saw that? Not if, I know you've seen it. For some of us, your thought process might go like this. <clears throat> Man, <laughs> I wish I would have talked to my mama like that. <laughs> that may have been the first place you started. Then you might have moved on, especially for those of us with kids, you might move on to thinking, and I wish you would try to talk to me like that. <laughs> but then after we spent some time diagnosing the problem, we would conclude that this child ain't afraid of their mama or their daddy. And as such, sees themselves on equal footing as being able to stand toe to toe with their parent Actually, they see themselves on, on, on more than just equal footing because they believe in their own mind that their no nullifies what the parent wants. You've done it. I've done it. Some of you young folks still living at home are actively doing it now. And it's crazy, right, that someone who has only lived a fraction of the years that their parents have lived, and that little bit of life has all been under the protection and the provision of that parent, would then stand in defiance and disobedience to that parent, declaring that the parent doesn't know, the parent doesn't understand, and that the parent doesn't care. Now, <clears throat> young people, you might be rolling your eyes thinking, oh my goodness, where did this come from? Uh, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'll tell you like my parents told me, just keep living. Because if the Lord blesses you to have some crumb snatches of your own, when you see how they act, you're going to call us and say, oh, my goodness, did I act like this? And we're going to lie and tell you, no, baby, you didn't. We're going to hang up and then slap each other high fives and say, yep, I knew it. Now they see. They, first, they had only heard about it. Now they see it with their own eyes. Mm -hmm. And parents, don't hurt yourselves trying to cut your eyes over at your children. Or be all in your feelings because of the season of parenting that you happen to be in right now. Because that's not the point that I'm making. I'm just trying to illustrate a picture. That when we stand, ourselves, adults and children, stand before God seemingly toe to toe. Man. Declaring to him what we will and won't do. Where we will and won't go. How we will and won't spend our time, our treasure and our talent. What is right and what isn't wrong and what is acceptable or unacceptable. We look just as ridiculous as that child standing in the store shouting no at their parent. To push this even further, the child is shouting no at the parent in the store. The child wouldn't be in the store 
unless the parent brought the child to the store. The child ain't going to get nothing in the store unless the parent buys something for that child in the store. That child talking about no, 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 ain't going to make it home unless the parent brings that child home. But yet and still, we have the audacity to stand before the God who existed before time and declare, God, I think you're wrong on this. I'm in the conclusion part of my sermon. And I know that because in my page, I have a highlighted word that says conclusion. These little markers that let me know where I am. And typically, right, when I get to this part of the sermon, I'm trying to do a couple of things. I'm trying to do a high-level summarizing of everything I've talked about. And I also try to anticipate what are the questions the listeners may still have. As I've gone through all of this and I get to the conclusion, this is my last chance, my last opportunity to share with you what questions may have popped up as we were moving through this. I, I can't get to all of them. I know that. But trying to get to that one. Right? And I think that, 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 that uh, <clears throat> what happens at most sermons at this point is that most people are thinking, I, look, I appreciate everything you said. That sounds really good. It resonates with me. <clears throat> but, but I have some questions around application. Right? What do I do now? Now you've laid that out, and now you've said all those things. What do I do now? And I think that that should be where some of us, if hopefully if not all of us, are at this point. What do I do now? How do I respond? How do I take advantage of God's wisdom, the wisdom that he used to create everything? How do I move away from leaning on my own understanding? How do I move from thinking that I'm wiser than God? <laughs> when I opened up, the uh, sermon. I opened up with a story from my college days, and I'm going to close actually with another story from my college days. When I went to uh, Georgia Tech as a freshman, right, <clears throat> there was a program run by the Office of Minority Educational Development, and it was for incoming uh, freshmen, and there were upperclassmen counselors who helped those freshmen with their transition into the school. Uh, and it helped us into the rigors and the challenges of college. And the program's name was actually called Challenge, the Challenge Program. And it was the most valuable thing I think I could have done. I learned a lot from that program. And one of the things that I learned in the program was that when, get this now, you're trying to prepare for tests and exams, you don't have to go it alone. Of course, you, you have your notes from class, you, you have uh, your textbooks, you have the TA, and you have study groups and, and study sessions, but there was something else that was even better. Because at Tech, right, professors would make some of their old tests and quizzes available so that you could use those to then help determine how best to study, what to study, what to expect. And this collection of study aids was simply called Word. Now get this. Knowing that students coming into tech would be facing some tests and some exams that they didn't have any context for or experience with, 
the ones who taught the classes and created the tests that those students would be going through made available previous versions of those tests so that the current students, if they were inclined to do so, could utilize those tests to help them prepare so that they could pass the current test that they were facing. And this collection of information, study aids, and examples put together by the professor is called the Word. Now, if you're asking, what do I do now? How do I respond? And what in the world, Charles, does that story have to do with what you just got through talking about? How do I take advantage of God's wisdom? You don't need to go sit underneath a tree somewhere pondering the meaning of life. You don't need to go on a spiritual journey to find God. You don't even need to begin binge-watching Oprah Super Soul Sundays to get to God's wisdom, but all you need to do is make a regular habit of getting into the word. You see, God, knowing that you and I coming into this life would be facing some tests and some trials that we didn't have any context for, that we didn't have any experience with, made available to you and to me information, study aids, and examples that if we would just spend time with it, we would find the wisdom, the insight, not of others, but of God himself. And we would be able to then move through the tests and the trials of life, the biggest one being sin and death. Hmm. So the question is, who are you trusting in? What are you leaning on? Are you trusting in your own understanding? Are you believing that in every situation you have the ultimate final say? Or do you believe that the God of the universe, who, by the way, has been doing this longer than any of us have even been alive, might have insight, wisdom, and understanding that could benefit us? Oh, and by the way, he freely offers it. Amen? Amen. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you've asked us to operate according to your wisdom, but you haven't hidden it from us. You haven't made it to where we don't know what it is. You haven't uh, made it to where uh, it's, it's unattainable. You've given it to us in your revelation. But what we have to do is spend time with it. And we have to believe what it says, God. God, move us, and I think this is at the core, move us from believing that you want less for us than we want for our own lives. Move us from believing that somehow you have come to take joy from us instead of giving it. Move us from believing that somehow life with the creator is less than life run by the created. Bring us to a place, God, where we fear you with the right heart, with the right mind, so that then we respond to you 
and eagerly seek to not only learn what you've said, but then to do what you've said. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you are here under the sound of my voice or if you're watching from home and um, you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and as we always say, we're not talking about um, just knowing, understanding some stuff about Jesus. But we're talking about do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ in the, in the, in the way that it, the Bible describes, one that saves not, the, not a historical knowledge, not a factual knowledge, but one that says, I realize that, God, there's, there's a standard that you have for my life. And that when I try to do it on my own, I can't. And if it's left up to me to be right with you, I'm in trouble. Because there are things in my mind that I can't control. There are things in my heart that... I don't know how they got there. There are things I want to do, places I want to go, stuff I enjoy. And I. <laughs> and if you're telling me that all that has to be out of the way for me to approach you, I need some help. And he says, yeah, that's why Jesus died on the cross for you. Not that all of that would just be washed away and all of a sudden you wouldn't have any of that in you anymore. But now you're not standing on your ability to do right, but you're standing on Jesus's righteousness. And then in response to understanding what it is that God has done for us through Jesus Christ, huh, then we say, God, help me to live like you want me to live. Help me to respond to you like you want me to respond. Yeah, I'm going to stumble. Yeah, I'm going to skin my shin. Yeah, I'm going to bump and bruise as I move through this, but God, because of the love you've shown for me, I'm responding back to you with love, wanting to live according to your precepts. If that doesn't characterize your relationship with God through Christ, send a message to the church. Get in touch with me, one of the elders and the deacons, so that we can have some deeper conversation with you. That is the relationship that God wants. Hmm. Not factual information about where Jesus was born, when he died, what did he say, where did he go? But relational information that says, he is my savior. His blood covers me. And it's in his power that I now live. Amen. Amen. Look, uh, let me do one more prayer. I know you guys are like, man, this dude's got us praying. We up, we talk, eyes closing. But before the uh, elders, uh, not the elders, the, the, uh, uh, <clears throat> Ushers, thank you. Come to dismiss us. Uh, just one uh, word of dismissal. Actually, you don't even have to close your eyes. Just keep looking. Do this every now and then. This may be weird for some of you. Look, may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he open up the understanding of your heart so that you would grasp and realize the width, the depth, the breadth, the length of the love that he has for us in Jesus Christ. And may that knowledge, as you move through this week, cause you to respond and cry out, God, Father, help me be your child. Amen.
Amen. You are dismissed.